This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Good morning. It's Tuesday, January 24th. 2023. Welcome to Now with Dave Brown coming to you on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown. Let's hit the horns and go. Coming up on the show today, researcher Michel Poitavin from the Montreal Economic Institute shares findings from a new study about the benefits of adjusting tuition fees. Or fills you in on New Brunswick's supported decision-making act. And researchers at the University of Waterloo have developed an authentication method called One Button Pin. Nelson Rago will tell you all about it. But let's begin the show with the top story of the day. And it feels like the never-ending story in Canadian economics. The fate of the Rogers' proposed takeover of Shaw goes before the Federal Court of Appeal today. Karen Rebo looks ahead. The Competition Bureau is seeking to overturn the Competition Tribunal's decision approving the $26 billion deal. In its appeal filings, the Competition Bureau alleges the Tribunal made four legal errors, centered largely around how the proposed sale of Shaw's Freedom Mobile to Videotron was factored into the decision. In its response, Rogers says the Bureau has relied on indirect attacks on the Tribunal's assessment of the evidence. The court hearing is set to run just one day, with a decision date not yet set as the extended January 31st closing date of the deal fast approaches. Karen Rebo, the Canadian Press. Let's look abroad to some news about the Russia-Ukraine war. NATO allies continue to grapple with the idea of sending German-made tanks to Ukraine. 11 member countries have appealed to Germany for permission to move the tanks. NATO Secretary Jens Stoltenberg points to the commitments Germany has already made in the war efforts. Germany is among the allies providing the most military, financial and humanitarian aid to Ukraine. This includes air defense uh, systems such as Gepard and RST, artillery and ammunition. You have recently also announced the delivery of advanced Patriot systems and modern infantry fighting vehicles. Even though Canada has not made a firm commitment to send tanks, Foreign Affairs Minister Melanie Jolie says arming Ukraine remains a priority. Canadians know that in order to get to lasting peace, we need to make sure that we continue to arm Ukraine. And when doing so, there's still a lot to do. And for sure, we will be doing more. That's what I can tell you right now. The Canadian Army has 112 of the Leopard 2 tanks that Ukraine is seeking. And there are new hurdles for Finland and Sweden as they seek to join NATO. Inez de la Coutura files this report. Finland's top diplomat saying Finland may have to join NATO without Sweden. This after Turkey's president warned Sweden not to expect its support for its NATO bid following anti-Islam and pro-Kurdish protests over the weekend outside the Turkish embassy in Stockholm. Finland's foreign minister telling Finnish media, quote, we still have to evaluate the situation if it turns out that Sweden's application is stalling for a long time to come, end quote. All 30 NATO member states must unanimously approve any NATO expansion. In Azdalekwaterra, ABC News at the Foreign Desk. 
Coming back to Canada, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has asked Canada's top public servants to look into the government's procurement process for the development of the Arrive Can app. The Globe and Mail reports that the government's paid a two-person Ottawa firm $44 million over two years to subcontract to six other companies to actually do the work. Trudeau says the process seems peculiar. Obviously, this is uh, a practice that seems highly uh, illogical and uh, inefficient, and uh, I have made sure that the uh, Clerk of the Privy Council is looking into procurement practices to make sure uh, that we're getting value for money and that we're doing things in a smart and logical way. And one more note from the federal cabinet retreat. Federal Health Minister Jean-Yves Duclos gave some more perspective on funding requests by the provinces for health care. Duclos says progress is being made. He reflected on the shared goals from all levels of government. We all serve the same people for the same purposes with the same dollars coming from the same pockets. So we are increasingly aligned as to the importance of investing those resources in achieving results for Canadians across Canada. And based on what we are therefore seeing, I'm hopeful that we'll get to an agreement quite soon. There is no date for another formal meeting of health ministers. Let's get to the daily polls. You can vote on polls at Accessible Media on Twitter or at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. On Monday, you were asked, what is the most important feature of a good public transit system? 50% of you said frequency of buses and trains. 0% of you said low cost. 25% of you said well-designed routes. And 25% of you said security. Today's daily poll requires a little bit of setup. A U.S. committee is taking up the issue of concert ticket sales today after the meltdown that hit the November rollout of Taylor Swift's upcoming tour. Reporter Justin Finch explains. Ticketmaster blamed the Taylor Swift debacle on high demand, claiming the website saw more than 3.5 billion requests. But in a new report, Politico reports the president of Ticketmaster's parent company will tell the committee that Ticketmaster was hit by a cyber attack, which played a role in the slowdown. So the question for today's daily poll at Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook is, do you find it difficult to buy concert tickets? And tell us why or why not in the comments. So the question is yes or no, but I want you to grapple with this. I want you to engage with this question. I want you to share your experiences because there could be any number of reasons that make it difficult to buy a concert ticket. Number one could simply be high cost, right? It costs a lot to go to concerts. You're looking at 150 bucks, 200 bucks for a concert ticket these days uh, for major shows. That's a lot of cash, not to mention dynamic pricing used by some of these ticket sellers becomes an issue. There's, of course, the secondary market and bots buying tickets up that make it difficult. So it could be cost. It could be just simply demand that makes it difficult. But what about this? Pretty much any concert or sporting event that I want to go to see always seems to be using a different platform to sell their tickets. I'm buying tickets for a Massey Massey Hall show through one platform. I'm buying tickets to a Marley's and uh, Laval Rocket game on another platform. I'm buying my Blink-182 tickets through Ticketmaster. So no matter where I'm going, it seems like, well, now I've got to open another account and remember another password. And is your platform accessible? Can it work with my Zoom technology? How does it work versus mobile versus on the desktop format? It really is quite the thicket to walk through to buy a concert ticket these days. So I would say it's quite difficult to buy a concert ticket for a myriad of reasons. Alex Smythe, what do you think? Yeah, Dave, it's absolutely uh, 
difficult, if, if not nearly impossible, depending on the type of ticket you're trying to to get. I mean, you you played the the audio about the whole debacle with Taylor Swift. I think any popular artist, musician, anyone who has big name recognition that's going to be playing at the the big venues like ACC, uh, Budweiser Stage, or and um, uh, the Rogers Arena, it's, you're you're going to be struggling to to be able to get tickets. Like, you know, you have so many different ways that people are trying to access them. Whether it's you know you have to sign up for the pre-sales. Okay, well, only so many tickets are are being handed out at any given time. And when when it opens up to the general uh, public, you're not getting all the tickets available to you. There's still as we we've learned uh, over time, it's like well, Ticketmaster doesn't release all the tickets. They they keep some back, you know, and they they release them in different times. And then you're you're dealing with issues like you know these dynamic pricings, as you mentioned. I think the biggest challenge is, and I I kind of want to push back against what you were saying about how oh, there's all these different platforms. I like that there's different platforms. I think Ticketmaster is a bit too much of a monopoly, especially when there's anything going on with a premium uh, act performance show because any of the the major sports um uh in north america you go through ticketmaster to buy them okay any of the major concert you're going through ticketmaster to buy them and it's like oh well you want to get pre-sale well there's ticketmaster exchange or there's StubHub, and we know with ticketmaster exchange well, Ticketmaster also gets a, a bit of a, a kickback on the percentage of the service fee based on how they sell it. So well, it's yeah, like, they, okay, they, well, they own both those companies. They own StubHub exactly. as well. Exactly. So there's that, they're, they're double dipping and you get that service fee and the service fee is a percentage of the ticket price that you, you sell it back at. So they're benefiting from the scalping. What should be done is, okay, just sell it at the ticket value price. That would solve, I think, a lot of problems. You get rid of the high demand of bot trying to sell it because you're not going to make any money on it. But that's not going to be happening because it's too incentive laden for uh, ticket uh, sellers to generate those profits that way. So, you know, as long as we have those types of issues, it's going to be impossible to get tickets. I don't know if I can ever really see a mainstream act anymore without signing up for these, you know, uh, fan clubs and, and paying extra money to just get the privilege of getting a ticket now. So I'll grant you that, yes, you don't want a monopoly in the space. But I will tell you, when you're going to 75 different places to get 75 different tickets over the course of a year, it gets a little bit frustrating and annoying because how much of my personal data do I want to give, give away to companies that maybe I don't know anything about their reputation? The other issue that I ran into last year trying to go to a show at, a, at the Horseshoe Tavern in downtown Toronto was I was just hoping to pick up some tickets on the day of. And I called them to be like, hey, do you guys do tickets at the door? And they didn't even pick up the phone. So, you know, uh, there's there's definitely this component as well that sometimes it makes it a little bit difficult to even do it the old way, which is where's the box office? Oh, I went to the box office yeah. and I handed you my hard-earned money via cash through a window for just one paper ticket. And that's becoming increasingly difficult to do as well. So, if I, but I do agree with you, Alex. Like we certainly don't want a monopoly in terms of our major ticket sales, but that means if you are going to, well, 
I'm willing to accept the monopoly if there's some regulation on the monopoly that says you yeah. have to have your business practices be in a particular way. Because I do like the idea of one-stop shopping. I like going to one place to get my things. So mm -hmm. there, there's, like, there's a merit from a convenience perspective on a customer point of view, but certainly there needs to be some regulation on top of that to make sure you're not triple dipping on service charges every time a ticket moves. Alex, thank you for your perspective on that one. At Accessible Media on Twitter is where you vote. At Accessible Media Inc. is where you vote on Facebook. You can also get involved via email, feedback at ami.ca, feedback at ami.ca, or you can give us a phone call, 1-866-509-4545. That's 1-866-509-4545. Let's go back to Alex for the national weather updates. Here is your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. We're going to start off in St. John's, Newfoundland, where there's rain off and on today with up to five millimeters falling and wind gusts up to 100 kilometers per hour in some areas. So there is obviously a wind warning in effect. The high for the area is eight degrees. In Halifax, Nova Scotia, there's snow this morning and then it's going to be cloudy later. There's also wind gusts up to 70 kilometers per hour. The high is two degrees, but with that wind chill, feeling like minus 10. In Montreal, Quebec, it is mainly cloudy with periods of snow. There's also wind gusts up to 60 kilometers per hour. The high is one degree, feeling like minus eight with that wind chill. In Ottawa, Ontario, snow off and on today, up to two centimeters is set to fall. The high is one degree as well, and with that wind chill it makes it feel like minus seven. In Toronto, Ontario, there's snow in the morning, and then it's going to be cloudy with the potential of more snow in the afternoon. Up to two centimeters is set to fall today. The high, three degrees. In Thunder Bay, Ontario, it's mainly cloudy with possible snow in the morning. The high is minus six, feeling like minus 16. Over to Winnipeg, Manitoba, it's cloudy with snow this morning and up to two centimeters set to fall. There's minus nine as a high, but it's quite cool with that wind chill. It makes it feel like minus 22. In Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, it's mainly cloudy with a chance of snow. The highest minus eight, feeling like minus 14. In Calgary, Alberta, it's mainly cloudy with a chance of snow or rain this morning, but then it's clearing up in the afternoon. The highest two, feeling like minus seven. In Edmonton, Alberta, it's uh, very similar conditions. It's mainly cloudy with a chance of snow or rain in the morning and then clearing up in the afternoon but the high being four degrees. In Yellowknife Northwest Territory, it is mainly cloudy with the chance of snow or rain in the morning and then clearing as well. The high is minus 15, but with that wind chill makes it feel like minus 25. Over to Vancouver, BC, it's mainly cloudy with a chance of rain and it's a high of five degrees. And finally, in Victoria, BC, mainly cloudy with rain expected around noon and it's a high of eight degrees. That's our AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. Thank you very much, Alex. Coming up after the break, the Montreal Economic Institute is out with a new study about the benefits of adjusting tuition fees based on cost of delivering the program. Researcher Michel Poitevin will share some perspective. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv.
Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. A recently published study shows the positive impact adjusted tuition fees can have on undergraduate students in Quebec. Here to share some of the findings is Michel Poitevin. Michel is a senior fellow at the Montreal Economic Institute and the lead author of the report. Good morning, Michel. Thank you so much for making time to be with us today. Good morning, Mr. Brown. So tell me a little bit about the current landscape for tuition fees in the province of Quebec. Well, right now, all students uh, pay the same fees of uh, $2,700, $2,725 uh, dollars per, per year. So everyone, uh, so it could be a student in at medical school, law school, or in social sciences, they all pay the same uh, tuition fees, which is quite different from... Uh, a lot of other Canadian universities in other provinces. What is the difference cost-wise in terms of delivering those programs? Which programs tend to be a little bit more uh, affordable to deliver and which ones tend to be a little bit more expensive? Well, social uh, social sciences and management uh, law uh, are, quite, uh, are quite cheap to deliver compared to... Uh, Med medical school, veterinary schools, and um, uh, and as well uh, arts, uh, arts. But uh, I mean arts in terms of uh, like music, uh, for example. Music is quite expensive because uh, the ratio of uh, students to a professor is quite low, so it's uh, it's expensive. So th that's uh, uh, music, for example, but you mentioned a couple other programs. What is it about those programs that make them so expensive to deliver? Well, uh, it's all in the, the way the, 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 the teaching is done. Uh, you could have a lot of labs. Uh, for example, in veterinary schools, uh, you'll need uh, animals. You need to feed these animals and, and stuff. So it's usually a fairly small classes and... Uh, and uh, the, the professors uh, often in some of these schools, you know, uh, they also practice and uh, their side, they command a higher salary. So it means that for every student, uh, the amount of resources that uh, the government must provide for their education is a lot higher, for example, than social sciences, where you could have uh, class sizes uh, ranging from uh, 50 to 200 or 300 students in the same class. Yeah, when I was at my first year at uh, the University of McGill, we had uh, 600 people in a few of my classes. So definitely you can uh, cram them in there for a poli-sci class. Right. And uh, and McGill, uh, they, they have probably less students in, in many departments than University of Montreal or UCAM, for example. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So under the research that you did, what would a more optimal tuition model look like? Well, our, the, our guiding principle was really to do a, align tuition fees with the cost of uh, the formation or uh, that uh, we're providing to the students. So it was fairly easy to do because the government publishes an index of uh, relative costs for different for, uh, formation. For example, in psychology, the index is equal to one. That's the least expensive uh, Formation you could get at uh, universities. Psychology, they have lots of students, so uh, it's uh, and it's a social science, so it, it's fairly cheap uh, to educate a student in psychology. And the most expensive one was veterinary school, and the the index uh, over there is a uh, fourteen uh, fourteen point uh, uh, fifty one. So that means it's fourteen times more expensive to train a veterinary. 
than an, uh, a psychologist. So, uh, so with these relative costs, then um, it was easy after that to co to construct uh, the, our uh, optimal tuition fees that would respect um, that would respect uh, the these, uh, this uh, structure. And uh, so we look at uh, how much university expand uh, per student uh, uh, on average. And then we sort of decouple we decouple the average to uh, to mimic uh, uh, this index. So, for example, it gives um, for a psychology student uh, the uh, the student instead of paying twenty seven hundred dollars would pay fifteen hundred dollars with uh, with our uh, proposal, while uh, a student in veterinary school instead of paying twenty seven hundred would pay twenty two thousand. So you can see that there's a big gap that uh, that's created. Mm. The answer to this may be a little bit self-evident, and I imagine it might be a little bit more qualitative than quantitative, but what impact would an adjusted tuition mean for students? Well, for 55% for of the students, we calculate that they would actually have their fees lower. So for, uh, for more than half of the students, they would see their fees lower. And, but in some discipline, uh, because uh, the, the fees would be much higher, uh, then they would pay a lot more. Um, the a sort of a, an advantage of this, and it was not designed like this, so that we looked at the, for most of the uh, uh, programs that would see a, a huge increase, uh, these are programs that lead to a, a fairly high uh, salaries uh, once you graduate. So. Um, we we still feel that uh, students uh, would uh, uh, it would be profitable for them to undertake these study. Furthermore, universities would get more funding, and it would be uh, easy to uh, get some of that extra funding uh, to provide uh, loans or scholarships to good students in these more expensive programs, mm -hmm. so that uh, accessibility would not be affected with our proposal. You mentioned the way that universities might react. What could some of the impact be on universities who maybe uh, pride themselves on a few of these more prestige programs? Well, um, collectively, uh, I, I, we have not done it for uh, you know each university, but collectively, universities would collect hundred and seventy-five million dollars more. Wow, it would be this uh, distribute, redistributed. So I think uh, universities uh, would be in favor of such a uh, uh, of such a proposal. And if you look at what happens at uh, prestigious Canadian universities such as U uh, University of Toronto or UBC, they have already uh, tuition fees that varies with uh, with programs, mm -hmm. and uh, they mm -hmm. seem to be very, doing very well in terms of attracting students. Yeah, you mentioned there is precedent elsewhere all across the country for something like this. How easy would it be for both uh, the Ministry of Education and universities in Quebec to undertake something like this? Well, I, I think the main obstacle uh, probably would be students. Uh, it seems that the initial reaction by student unions to this proposal was uh, that they'd be against it. But uh, my feeling is that they haven't read the or publicized enough uh, the, the proposal because uh, if it's a proposal that uh, again offers 55% of the students uh, a lowering of their tuition fee. So it's hard to imagine that in the end, um, stu uh, student unions uh, would be against it. 
I think for the ministry, it would be something uh, very, very interesting because uh, I, uh, more money would be devoted to universities and that 175 million uh, could go to uh, improve the quality of the education at, um, at the university level in Quebec. Michelle, as soon as I saw this research, I was fascinated by it. And uh, I said, we need to get Michelle on the show to talk about this. Thank you for making time for us this morning. It's really interesting work that you and your colleagues are doing. Thank you very much for having me on. I appreciate it. That is Michelle Poitvin, a senior fellow at the Montreal Economic Institute and a lead researcher on this report. Coming up next, accessibility reporter Megan Gilmore will fill you in on New Brunswick's Supported Decision-Making Act. But first, here is Canadian press reporter Karen Rebo with your Morning Business Minute. Canada's main stock index logged a triple point gain in trading yesterday. Toronto's TSX index closed 128 points higher at 20,631. New York's Dow Jones average gained 254 points and the Nasdaq climbed 223 or 2%. In Tokyo this morning, the Nikkei index gained 393 points. Hong Kong markets remain closed for Lunar New Year holidays and our dollar is trading overseas this morning at 74.79 cents US. The of Rogers Communications proposed takeover of Shaw Communications goes before the Federal Court of Appeal today in Ottawa as the Competition Bureau seeks to overturn the Competition Tribunal's decision that approved the $26 billion deal. In its appeal filings, the Competition Bureau alleges the Tribunal made four legal errors centered largely around how the proposed sale of Shaw's Freedom Mobile to Videotron was factored into the decision. From the Canadian Press Business Desk, I'm Karen. Karen Rebo. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. New Brunswick has passed a law that could be a game changer for people with intellectual and developmental disabilities. Megan Gilmore has some more details about the province's new Supported Decision Making and Representation Act. Hey, good morning, Megan. How are you? Good morning, Dave. How are you? I'm well. Megan, this one could get a little bit complicated, so let's start here. What does the new law do? Okay, so in Broad summary, uh, this law was created to replace another law that was called the Infirm Persons Act. And what that law did is it allowed courts to have, quote, full jurisdiction and authority over, unquote, people who were deemed to be mentally incapable. And this had been uh, seen as problematic for decades, and people have been working to change it. So this new law specifically allows for an individual who um, previously may have been deemed uh, mentally incapable under the law to appoint another adult to help them make decisions. So the way this would work is, let's say I was a, an adult who wanted somebody to help be legally recognized as someone who could help me make decisions. I would write down an agreement listing who my supported decision maker uh, is, um, what they are helping me make decisions about and how long they are going to be in this role. And that's where the title of this act comes. So if somebody is supporting someone else in making a decision. They're not making a decision for somebody else, like being a substitute decision maker. Mm -hmm. Megan, you and I will oftentimes discuss the importance of definition, and it's particularly mm -hmm. important in laws. How yes. does this law define capacity? 
Sure. So there's a couple of things to this. The first general definition of capacity in this law is that a person has capacity to make a decision if they're able to understand the information that is relevant to the decision. And then secondly, if they're able to appreciate the reasonably foreseeable consequences of that decision. But this law goes further in its definition of capacity, and it says that a person has the capacity to make a decision if not if they're able to understand the information about the decision and understand the reasonably foreseeable consequences if they're with the assistance that is available. So you are still deemed capable under this law to make a decision if you need help to understand the decision that you're making. And then it goes further in its definition of capacity and says that you know it's possible that somebody may um, have variations in their capacity over time. So just because I, let's say last week, I wasn't deemed legally uh, capable to make a decision, that doesn't mean that that is a forever state. I may be capable at another time. Megan, I know you had a chance to speak yeah. with uh, Kevin Pike. What did he have to say? Sure. So Ken Pike is the director of social policy at Inclusion and B, uh, one of the organizations that was advocating for this law. And here's how he explained the overall approach of this law to me. So supported decision making um, is based on the premise that you know pe people um, may need various types of help to make decisions but with that help and support or assistance that um, they're able to um, have their wishes and preferences um, recognized and uh, um, have decisions made that are are um, the decisions that they would make personally so it shifts from somebody doing making decisions for to people helping the person uh, themselves make make uh, make their own decisions. So Megan, that's some perspective on the overall rationale of the law. Let's get mm -hmm. into some details. Yep. When could a supported decision maker be used? There's three main areas that are identified in the law. One is financial matters, so things related to your money. One is healthcare decisions. And then there's a third category called personal care decisions. And that's a little broader. So that could include things like, like what food you're going to buy and eat, where you're going to live, um, social activities that you'll be involved in, that sort of thing. Um, there are some uh, like stipulations on this. So the decision-making assistant, as they're described in the law, cannot agree to decisions that would harm the person that they're assisting. Um, and they also uh, can't get paid for this position, although in some cases they may be reimbursed for their expenses. And there are some uh, restrictions on who can actually be in this role. If you have certain occupations, it um, restricts you from it. But um, relatives are allowed to have this position if they meet all the other qualifications. So for example, a parent could be in this role for their adult child. How much involvement would the courts potentially have on the selection of the person who becomes a supported decision maker? Yeah, that's a great question. So it really depends on the individual who is the decision maker. 
And while the law does create this category that I just talked about, having a decision-making assistant, it also still leaves room for the courts to, um, in certain circumstances, appoint somebody to take on that role for you. But that can only be done once all other, what the law calls less intrusive methods have been explored. So again, Ken Pike from Inclusion BC explained the different uh, models that are in this law. If you can imagine uh, an inverted triangle where at the top of the triangle, it's people who, who can make decisions independently, may need some accommodations, and then you keep going down, it would be people who can appoint their own decision-making assistance, and then the other levels of, of, of appointing decision-making supporters. And then at the very bottom where you're, for th those people that uh, there are no alternatives around making decisions, you can get, you can have a representative appointed and that's the substitute piece. So hmm. it doesn't eliminate that. It's, um, sure. And, um, uh, but it, it does require that you're looking at those other more enabling or less intrusive alternatives first. Megan, you mentioned off the top, this is something that advocates have been fighting for for decades. Mm -hmm. What has been the reaction to the new law so far? So uh, when this law was passed uh, last month in the middle of December, Inclusion Canada put out a press release calling it historic that uh, this law really um, blazes a new trail in terms of giving more independence for individuals with certain disabilities. Uh, Ken Pike said that Inclusion uh, NB has already heard from other provinces who want to learn more about uh, this law and what it could potentially look like in their jurisdictions. So certainly no law is perfect, regardless of the fact that it might be historic or something people have been advocating for in principle for years. What would people like improved? Okay, so first of all, um, this is a conversation that regular listeners uh, to this program will not be uh, surprised by. Some details of this law are being left to regulation. Oh! Now, yes, <laughs> uh, but only some, okay? This isn't the national disability benefit that left all the regulations. This is just very specific things, like what would an application form look like and things like that. So we'll have to see uh, what the regulations will say and all that. Um, Ken Pike mentioned, and he alluded to it in that last clip we uh, played there, that there's some individuals who, um, what they need when they're going to make a decision, let's say, about their money, about healthcare, things like that, is they just need somebody to relay the information to them in a way that is accessible. So they they're, they understand what the decision means. They understand what the consequences are. Let's just say for uh, sake of argument, the font is too small on the papers and yep. they can't yep. read it on their own, theoretically. Um, so the like, all you need is somebody to come and help provide you with accommodations. The law does not actually formally recognize that as a specific class or group of people who are helping with decision making mm -hmm. granted like the duty to accommodate is covered under human rights legislation but uh, you can make an argument that that would be more strongly enforced if this law had specifically mentioned that, that there's some people with disabilities who do um all honestly all they need is just an alternative form of communication um and they're fine um yeah. and then yeah. another 
Or, 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 some, or something you and I have talked about before in terms of accommodation is plain language, right? Yeah. Especially if yeah. we're talking about someone with a cognitive disability, plain language is a huge, huge thing. And certainly right. when we're talking about the important decisions you're going to make around, say, money or government policy or health policy, you go to the website, you go to the FAQ, and it's all bureaucratic jargon. Right, yeah. No, it's true. They're like frequently asked questions. And you're like, you actually literally just copied and pasted the text of your legislation into an FAQ. That's all <laughs> you did. Nobody's asking that question who actually is reading this law. Um, and that actually brings up another thing. So I talked to Shelly Petit of the New Brunswick Coalition of Persons with Disabilities um, and also Patty O'Donnell of People First uh, New Brunswick. And they both mentioned that like plain language is really needed in this law, particularly because this law is meant to help people who typically need plain language more. This law is 59 pages long. I know because I read it. Oh my and gosh. It, it, it gets in the weeds. There's a lot of repetition and it can be hard to make that mental map for yourself. of like, wait, what are we talking about? Who are we talking about? What is their job? And but because it is a law that has so much repetition built into it, it would be, I think, easily uh, synthesized into a plain language document. So that, that's a big thing that people would like to see. And along with that, they'd want to see this law better advertised um, to make sure that individuals with disabilities and their families know about it. It's particularly important because, as Shelley uh, from the coalition pointed out, the agreement that somebody would make if they were appointing their um, decision-making assistant needs to be signed by a New Brunswick lawyer who is in good standing with the Law Society of New Brunswick. And she is a concern that that might put a financial burden yes, on yes. some people. So unless you can find lawyers who are knowledgeable about this and are doing it pro bono or doing it at a discounted rate, that, that could be a barrier. But a lot about just letting people know that this is out there um, and explaining it in a way that makes sense. Megan, you're an excellent accessibility reporter, but you're also oh, an ex you. you're also an excellent host of the Connecting Disability podcast on the mighty AMI Audio Podcast Network. What is the latest episode about? Right, so the latest episode dropped last week, and it is about space exploration and oh, space travel. Heck yeah. Yes, I know. So we talked to Dina Lambert, who works for NASA, and she's involved with some equity and diversity inclusion initiatives there. But she's also a ambassador for an organization called Astro Access that is researching ways to have people with disabilities better included in space travel and space exploration. So yeah, we talked about going to space. Oh my gosh, shooting it's for the great. moon, shooting for the moon mm -hmm. with Megan Gilmore, maybe even beyond. Yeah. I shouldn't limit us to just uh, little satellites <laughs> that spin around the earth. Megan, thank you for this. Thank you for all the hard work and we will talk to you uh, in a week or two. All right, have a good rest of the show. That is accessibility reporter Megan Gilmore. You can follow Megan on social media on Twitter at Megan Gilmore, M-E-A-G-A-N-G-I-L-L-M-O-R-E, at Megan Gilmore. Coming up next, we're staying in New Brunswick when community reporter Louise Levesque Burley joins from Moncton to share some information about the New Brunswick drug plan. But first... Microsoft is making a big investment in artificial intelligence. Mike Dubusky has details in Tech Trends. Microsoft says it's expanding its relationship with OpenAI, the startup behind buzzy artificial intelligence programs like ChatGPT and Dolly2. Semaphore Tech reporter Reed Albergati. OpenAI's 
very popular. They're they're really kind of the leading brand name now in this type of artificial intelligence. Specific numbers are scarce. Microsoft just calls this a multi-year, multi-billion dollar investment. But OpenAI will be taking advantage of Microsoft's cloud services. So this is going to be a good thing for their for their cloud business as they try to catch up. They're the number two player behind Amazon in that business. Albergati says Microsoft has lagged behind competitors in search engines and mobile devices. So that's why it's betting big on AI. I think what Microsoft sees here is that artificial intelligence is potentially the next big wave in consumer tech. With Tech Trends, I'm Mike Dubusky, ABC News. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Louise Levesque-Burley is standing by in Moncton, New Brunswick to talk about a provincial drug plan. But here's a related news story. Amazon is adding a prescription drug discount program to its growing American healthcare business. Donna Warder explains. Amazon is launching RX Pass. It's a subscription service for customers who have Prime memberships. Amazon says the customer pays $5 a month to fill as many prescriptions as they need from a list of about 50 generic drugs, such as the antibiotic amoxicillin or the anti-inflammatory drug naproxen. Even the generic form of Viagra is on the list. Amazon sells a range of generic drugs through its pharmacy service, and some already cost as low as $1 for a 30-day supply. The new program does not use insurance, and people with Medicaid or Medicare coverage are not eligible. It starts in 42 states and Washington, D.C. I'm Donna Water. Drug plans in Pharmacare find themselves in Canadian news as well. The federal NDP will be applying pressure on the federal government to pass a national Pharmacare legislation during this session of Parliament. And in the meantime, New Brunswick has a drug plan of their own. Community reporter Louise Levesque-Burley has some perspective to share on this. Hey, good morning, Louise. Hey, good morning, Dave, and I guess Happy New Year. <laughs> Louise, thank you for that. I appreciate it. So, Louise, let's talk about this provincial plan. What are they well, offering? First... Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. Um, first of all, I just learned about this through another person who's blind. I knew nothing that New Brunswick had a drug plan. And when I did hear about it, she did know a lot of details. So I investigated and and um, it's for people that have absolutely no coverage there are some people um you know social development everything is covered you can have a private um, blue cross plan and uh, it's people that have absolute and it depends on your revenue the cost and here's here's a bit of juggling here um not sure exactly what new brunswick drug plan was thinking but um it's not known one and two it doesn't cover all of the medication that you may be on so in order to find out you need to go to your pharmacy and they have your medication codes and they punch it into this new brunswick plan and then they'll tell you yes it is covered no it is it isn't covered. In or, <clears throat> excuse me. In order to apply, I'm going to give you a telephone number, and they can give you a lot more details. But 
They are very, very helpful. They can also give you an approximate how much you may pay. And it, again, it's all about your revenue. So um, the number is one 540 7325. And it's not always the same person that answers. So you may have to tell your story uh, a couple of times to do different <laughs> people. But it is something available. Uh, it's not advertised anywhere. Now, when you turn 65, just six months before you turn 65, they do send you, New Brunswick, a package with a few options of drug plan. But that's only, um, and, and my friend who is blind, she's in her 40s. So she was paying out of pocket major, major medication. And now she's on this New Brunswick uh, drug plan. Okay, Louise, lot to unpack there. As usual, you ran a <laughs> marathon of sharing information. Um, I don't even know where to begin because you shared so much, but let's talk about the importance of advertising services like this. Yes. What do you think could be done better to make sure people in New Brunswick who need these kinds of services know about these services? Well, for me, I wish my pharmacy, pharmacy, I mean, that's where you go get your prescription, right? You get them filled up there. So a pharmacy um, should uh, say, okay, you have no coverage. Did you know about this? That's, I guess, one angle. Um, the other is, it is online, but not everybody does searching things out like mm -hmm. I do or mm -hmm. the next person, right? So, and some people don't even bother with going online. So, um, I would say for me, I would, in doctors, like um, doctors' offices, uh, nurses, practitioners, um, all of those people that prescribe drugs, um, I feel that that's where they need to be more ad, you know, more, more interactive with their clients, I guess, about this drug plan. Yeah, absolutely. So certainly that's frontline service, right? When the doctor prescribes you something, hey, FYI, do you have insurance? No, I don't. Yeah, hey, exactly, do you know about this new Brunswick Dave, drug plan, exactly. right? Like it, it becomes a very simple part of the process that somebody can ask a very easy question. And then it's not even up to them to start going into what qualifies, what doesn't qualify, this qualifies. Exactly. They can simply say, here's the phone number, one 855 540-7325, give these people a call and they can offer you some guidance. Yeah, it, it really speaks to the way in which sometimes there are very useful services out there that just don't get advertised. They don't get explained to people. They don't get told to And people. that's right. And and they're very willing to help you with the application if you need so. Um, because I told them I was blind and I mean, I'm not going to apply. I have my own, but I did the call as though I didn't have a plan to get the information. Mm -hmm. And they were very helpful. Yes, you know, would you like uh, for us to help you? We can do it over the phone or we can do it online with you. Uh, they, you know, so let them know that you need some help and they, and, and 
they can answer any of your questions. Mm. Louise, let's go from one topic that you're passionate about to another topic that you're passionate about, and that's guide dog access and support for guide dog handlers. Guide dog handlers in New Brunswick now have access to a specialized support group. Who is hosting the group? CNIB uh, has started uh, this January a new guide dog handler um, support group in New Brunswick. Um, if you go on CNIB national website, there is one, but it, this is not a national. This is New Brunswick, and we're we're we did have a meeting, and um, in the meeting we identified some serious issues. There's I think twelve of us um, uh, guide dog handlers in this group right now. And we're working on educating, doing presentation with um, taxis company across mm -hmm. the province. Mm -hmm. And the other one is we're working on the um, uh, public uh, transit buses announcing the stops because a lot of them don't and people get off the wrong stop or uh, the bus driver forgets to tell them and on and on and on. There's a lot to be done here, but those are the two top priorities that we have identified. The other side to it too, like some people in the group have just you know, only one year with their guide dogs and they, there are little tricks of the trade that they, they love to ask and don't know how to do or, so we kind of share, um, you know, I've had dogs now for 20, 29 years. Mm. So, uh, and and so you know they'll ask different things you know how do you do your recall of a dog if you let them run well i would say make sure it's fenced in <laughs> <laughs> in order for the dog to learn to come back and have treats in your pocket and don't let the dog know that you got treats in your pocket yeah so yeah. that's how you that's how you keep me around too louise keep treats in your pocket <laughs> So, you know what I'm trying to say? Like, it's a really a nice group. Um, I'm really happy that we are going to do some awareness finally, not just fundraising. Um, and there are some tools that we're developing, you know, PowerPoints and, and actually CNIB does have a... Um, a package already done and we're just expanding on it mm -hmm. so yeah so i'm pretty excited about it because you know it has been issues all around in new brunswick and elsewhere right mm -hmm. louise you mentioned that uh the national website may not have these kinds of details but there is someone people can reach out to directly who should folks reach out to if they want to get involved in this uh regional group this new brunswick group <laughs> This would be uh, Debbie Jeffrey. She's uh, the operational manager and community engagement person. And you just send her an email and or you can call CNIB and she will let you know. Uh, the next meeting, just so people know, it's February 14 and we have the meetings at noon because some of them work. So they take their lunch hour to join us and it's done on Zoom. Excellent. Well, if people want to reach out to Debbie Jeffrey, they can email Debbie at Debbie dot jeffrey g 
not G, J-E-F-F-E-R-Y at cnib.ca or give a phone call 506-857-4240, extension 5611. In all those cases, all this information is going to pop up on the blog after the show, ami.ca slash now, ami.ca slash now. Louise, you've got one more thing you want to talk about here. I've got to hold you to about 90 seconds on it, but you okay, recently so discovered the benefits of list making. Well, you know, every year, Dave, I always have these wedges and I make a bunch of lists and it, does, it I just found out the last two years doesn't work. So now what I do is I open a document, make a daily list. And at the end of the day, I take about three to five minutes and the list can be consisting of I'm calling my aunt. Um, I need to do laundry. And I'm going for my two kilometer walk. Mm -hmm. I've got three Zoom meetings, um, just a whole bunch of stuff. And at the end of the day, I just go, okay, done. This one's done. This one's done. This, why did this one didn't get done? I put a reason to put it on for the next day. So it keeps me prioritized and I find that I get a lot more done productively during my day. Yeah, it's a tangible sense of accomplishment because you can cross something off the list, but it also really helps you stay organized, task-oriented. I don't yeah. make lists, Louise, but if anybody ever spent any time with me on my work computer, at the start of the day, I open up every email that I have to respond to. So every time I look into Microsoft Outlook, there's 13 or 14 emails that are open and I get to knock them off one at a time. Bang, 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 yeah, bang. Yeah, yeah. And by the end of my workday, I'm like, that was a good day. See, it makes you feel good, right? <laughs> it certainly does. A sense of accomplishment can go a long, long way. Louise, talking to you makes me feel good. All the best to you and yours. Nice to chat with you today, and we'll, talk, we'll catch up again in a few weeks. All right. Take good care. That is community reporter Louise Levesque-Burley in New Brunswick. One more time, I'll remind you about the blog address, ami.ca slash now, ami.ca slash now. That's where you find things like phone numbers, links, etc., to the stories that we cover on the show. Coming up after the break, I have your regional news update and Brock Richardson is stopping by with a couple of really interesting topics in the sports chat. Parasport coverage, both in streaming and on broadcast. And we will dip our toes in the sometimes murky water of the world of athlete protests. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Hi, I'm Ramia Amuthan. Join me weekly for AMI Audiobook Review, the podcast that explores new titles, introduces us to famous narrators, and updates what's hot at the Center for Equitable Library Access. Download episodes of AMI Audiobook Review from your favorite podcast provider.